Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, welcome to the Melting Pot Podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse, and today I'm talking to Sue Hollis. Sue is in the US. She's going superbike racing today, so she's been up at 3.30 this morning. Thank you to Kevin Lawrence, Coach Kevin, for the intro. Uh, Sue is corporate executive, entrepreneur, mother, author, and now she says she's an adventurepreneur. She doesn't like the term work-life balance. She prefers life harmony, getting things in the right order and not trying to do things that you don't like to do, which is why three years ago, she stepped down as the CEO of her 180-person, almost 20-year-old corporate travel business in Australia, found a CEO to replace her. We talk about how she did that. We talk about how she built that business based on some really strong core values and there's some tips in here for people who are thinking how do i use my values and and how do i how do i really build a recruitment engine to make sure that we get the right people in the business values and culture are really important in fact she even went on tony shay's uh, zappos culture bootcamp in the early days um she managed to fit it in with some bike racing in vegas so it all worked out i've had a fantastic time today talking to sue I'm sure you'll enjoy listening. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Sue Hollis. I am a coach, a speaker, a writer, an adventurepreneur. And as we speak, it is literally four o'clock in the morning in Washington State in the US. I'm speaking to Dom very excitedly just prior to um, about to hit the racetrack to race superbikes around the ridge in Seattle. In previous lives, I have been a corporate heavy hitter with Global Airlines, British Airways and Qantas, before braving the wild world of entrepreneurship and starting my own business, a company called Travel Edge, which became a, a multi-million dollar organization and which I stepped down from about three years ago. I, I still own it and I'm still on the board, but I decided to explore a different kind of life and I'm currently living that. So um, that's me. Sue, thank you very much indeed for coming on today. Why why are you in the US racing superbikes? <laughs> Many people ask me that question, Dominic, particularly my family. I've been racing motorbikes since I was 16. Before I could legally ride, I was racing. And um, it's always been a passion of mine. So I've ridden motorbikes since I was very young. I love the adrenaline. I love the fear. I love the if I make a mistake, it's going to really hurt. It's going to really bite me. And I just love that complete absorption where you can think about nothing else. You know, when your life's on the line and you're doing, you know, upwards of 220, 230 kilometers an hour, you have to be very focused. You have to be very driven. You have to be determined. And you have to hang on really tight as well. 
So it, it's kind of an analogy for life, I guess, more than anything else. Oh, blimey. And do you ever go on holiday and do nothing? No, never, never, no. <laughs> I sort of thought that might be the answer. You said in the intro that you're an adventurepreneur. Is this what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think having left my business, as I said, you know, three years ago, I decided to create a business based on lifestyle. Effectively, what that means is now that I'm a, a coach, a guide, a, a speaker, I'm an author, as well as much as kind of keeping my eye on the business, um, which I obviously still do, I can have a business that lets me coach clients. So I work with primarily people looking to come to the, the same point that I have at some stage where you kind of go, well, okay, I've, I've achieved all the measures of success. Is, is this what life's supposed to be about? So I coach people and I speak and I write, but I also get to do adventurous things. So I mountain climb. I'm a serious rock climber. I'm a diver. I run marathons. I race motorbikes. And I'm literally currently, as, as I said, you know, racing today and tomorrow. But that's all part of literally a kind of a three and a half week trip for me where I'm just on my bike, just cruising around the US and just connecting with people, seeing amazing things, riding amazing roads and, and eating really bad American food. <laughs> <laughs> so let's take let me take you back to this journey of yours so you you said you were with Qantas and British Airways what were you doing for them and is that we have you always been in travel yeah I have I kind of bluffed my way into travel as we kind of bluff our way I think in into most things so I was with British Airways for about 15 years so initially in Australia so um, I started very young I had an amazing mentor who saw something in me that Lord knows I didn't see him myself, who employed me and to a, a reasonably senior position straight off the bat where I didn't know the front of an aircraft from the back. And I was put in charge of New South Wales, which is a state in Australia. So I was in charge of the operation and the sales for British Airways at you know, 25 or something, which was very scary because the, the bulk of my team were kind of in their 40s and you can imagine they were really excited about having a 25-year-old a that knew nothing about the business coming in as their, as their leader. And also a woman. And a woman, because I'm very old. <laughs> that was a long time ago. So that was quite challenging. So British Airways in Sydney, then I was transferred to London. I ran London sales for British Airways. And then I ran the 767 operation for BA. And so that was pilots, operations, um, crew. And at that stage, I um, my husband, bless him, was still in Australia. We were commuting for four years and somehow um, goodness knows how I discovered that I was expecting my first son so we moved back to Australia I wanted him to go there and, and British Airways very conveniently for me then bought a 25% stake in Qantas and my job once I came back from maternity leave was called the Joint Services Agreement which was basically bringing the two airlines together so I did that for a couple of years so so trying to bring two huge cultural entities together, neither of which wanted to be together. So that was my job for a couple of years. And then I decided that I wanted to stay back in Australia. So I headed Australia sales for Qantas after that. Aha. Uh -huh. And so why did you decide you've been successful there? Why, why leave corporate life? And is the next thing starting your own business after that? Generally, that's not a step that most people take. <laughs> I don't think, Dominic. I think it's interesting because I think, you know, you've either got to have the entrepreneur, you know, they say, you know, entrepreneurs are, are potentially born. And I don't think I necessarily was. 
But I realised that I was coming to the end of my rope, I guess, to a degree. And look, it wasn't Qantas's fault, but I was starting to feel in a corporate environment that I couldn't make a difference. You know, in a big, heavy-duty cultural place, I was finding it harder and harder to live my values. And, and that became a real shock for me because, it, you know, I suddenly realised that my values were becoming more important to me than the next promotion. And I never saw that coming. You know, when I was on that on that track, it was about the next promotion, the next opportunity, getting higher, faster, you know, quicker, being the youngest person to, you know, to be the most senior person. And it was a process of evolution, I guess, over a couple of years where I suddenly realised that I didn't want to ask myself, was I happy? Because I knew the answer would be no. And if the answer was no, then I would have to do something else. And um, eventually, I think you kind of reach the point where you you have to answer that call. You can't ignore it any longer. And and for me, the answer was I wanted to create something that really made a difference where I could really live my values and, and where I could build a, an environment of great culture, great people, great service delivery, and really just do it by myself. So, yep, I stepped away from the security and, and uh, went into the unknown. Where do you think your drive comes from? Oh, now that's a really scary question. Um, because it's it's frankly something that I've had to learn to manage. I think my drive certainly comes from, you know, if we go back and back and back, my drive comes from literally wanting to be, we kind of laugh about it in my family, but there's a folklore story that my dad says, you know, it was back in the old days when fathers weren't part of being in the birthing and, and the nurse would come out and say, congratulations. And and my, my godfather, who was with my dad at the time, tells the story, they, you know, they came out and said, congratulations, Mr. Hollis, you have a baby. And he said, what is it? And they said, it's a girl. And he went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've grown up hearing that story. So I'm sure a good psychologist would take me back to that point and say, you know, that was my desire to say, right, well, you want a son, you're about to get one. Look out. Were you the oldest? I was the oldest and, yeah. and, you know, I subsequently did have a, a beautiful brother. That story kind of, it's family folklore. My dad denies it, but, you know, we know it's true. But, you know, I think it kind of comes from that. And, and I remember as a small child, you know, my mother taking me into a grocery store and I could only have been about five years old and her asking for something in the, the Italian grocer in, in true Australian tradition, went to the back of the store, called his wife out, was quite abusive in Italian until this woman, you know, came out very subserviently and gave him what he wanted. And I remember saying to my mum, why did he speak to her like that? And he said, well, she, he can because that's his wife. He's her husband. And as a five-year-old, I remember thinking, and that is never going to happen to me. I am never, ever going to be in that position. I'm going to take control. And I can still remember the day. So yeah, it goes a long way back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What were the values that you felt were going to be challenged? if you stayed at Qantas? Well, really interesting. You know, one of my, my core values had been growth and learning and, and I kind of was working in an environment and no disrespect to my former employers, but but the value that they placed on people, you know, in terms of their growth and development was, was virtually minimal. And I won't name the organisation, but one actually did say to me, you know, so I had a huge sales force and, and a group of people and I remember saying to, you know, to the CEO, we have to train these people, we have to develop them. You know, and he said to me, they have a job, they should be happy. And that just that just went to the core of, you know, my heart. It was just like, if we're not bringing out the best in these people, then we as an organisation, you know, are sadly lacking. 
you know, and, and it was, again, it was a long time ago and, and life's changed from both of those organisations, you know, so it's, it's certainly not there you know, yeah. now, but it certainly was the principle of you have a job, an amazing organisation, people are really lucky to work for it and they should be thankful and we don't need to invest in people. And, and when I realised I couldn't make a difference to my people, that's when things started to kind of spiral for me. And so when you set up your own business, then what you've got, you've got that sort of desire to learn and develop and bring out the best in people. You've obviously got your drive, you've got your organizational skills and your sales ability. What, what else was at the core of that new business that you wanted the business to give you that Qantas weren't giving you? It's really interesting because it, it, I started my business with a business partner. He was at Qantas with me. And um, we were incredibly fortunate. We didn't realize it at the time, but we had, you know, if you kind of look at the, the skill set circle, he had all the top schools. So he was a, an actuary, an investment banker by trade. So he was certainly the numbers man. And so he was very, you know, strategic, big picture thinking, whereas I was the, you know, hands-on deliverer owner. And I don't think we realized at the time going into partnership can be incredibly tricky. And we were very fortunate to kind of discover that we had a complete skill set between the two of us. We decided that we wanted to be in business together. We actually didn't, we spent quite some time working out what that vehicle would be because we knew that we had incredible talents between us. We knew that we wanted to create a values-based business. So a, a culture, I guess, having come from quite a, a tough, quite a kind of chauvinistic, very difficult culture at the time, we wanted to create a business where basically we could create an environment where people could be the very, very best that they could in whatever it was that they were doing, both personally and professionally. We wanted to create something that added amazing value to clients, that clients went, wow, that's the best that it gets. And create an environment where, you know, where we too could utilize the skills that we had and hopefully make some money. So they were kind of the priorities. And, you know, we, we actually played around and we knew that we wanted to work together. And we played around with a number of things and we kind of figured that we'd start with corporate travel because that's where we could do the least damage. So that's kind of where we started. And then you were massively successful. I was going to say you were an overnight success in what was the, when, when did you start the, when, how long ago is that? When did you start the business? We started the business in 2000 and um, my partner and I were fairly high profile. So in the industry, so we kind of flew under the wire for a little bit. And we had, we, we knew, I mean, starting in, in travel, particularly corporate travel, in those days, it was a very high labor intensive business. And so we knew it would take us and we needed to invest in technology because we were really, we became very clear on what our market niche was and where we wanted to attract coming. So when we came into the business, the markets changed significantly, but we knew there was a gap that we wanted to fill. So when we came in there, we had big players like American Express, those kind of guys who did great technology not brilliant service. Then you had the boutique players who did great service and, you know, weren't big on terms of technology. And there was a, a beautiful sweet spot right in the middle. And that's where we position our business to do both, to do great technology, great service, and to really make a difference. So we kind of positioned the business in there, but it took literally kind of two years. And we knew, we knew it would take us two years and we kind of put the money aside to do that because we, you know, literally didn't make any money. And and I was very supported by my husband who basically, you know, and I was the major breadwinner who basically said, look, I, I don't care if we eat mints for the next two years, if, you know, or three years or four years, and, you know, if that's what you want to do, then you know, follow your passion. So we did, but the first two years were breathtakingly hard, I have to say. Yeah. Well, it's that time when have you really got the market? Does your partnership work? 
money's going out the door and the revenue's not coming in and it, you just get these high, emotional highs and lows where there are times when you just think it's not going to work. Constantly. And, you know, I think if I had had a crystal ball 20 years ago and I'd have seen what it took, what it would take to get that business up and running to be the success that it is today, I don't know that I would have had the courage, you know, because, I mean, you just nailed it. I mean, it's just, it's a complete roller coaster. But, you know, I, I guess 20 years ago, my crystal ball was a little clouded. I, you know, I didn't see it. So I just kind of went into it and was very excited. But the first year in business, we had, we woke up one morning and it was a Monday morning and Ansett Airlines, who was a, a big Australian airline, had gone bankrupt or gone to foreclosure on, you know, on the Monday and they owed us a lot of money. Day two, their catering company, which was our biggest corporate client, went into bankruptcy. They owed us even more money. And three days later, tragically, it was September 11 and everyone stopped flying. So, you know, and we had a, a million-dollar airline bill to pay the next Monday. So, you know, when you kind of get all three, three things like that hitting you in your first year of business where you've got no fat in the business, if you can weather that, I think you can weather everything. But Lord, even when I talk about it now, it almost makes me want to throw up. It, you know, it's such a scary time. It hasn't left me. The, the trauma is still in my body. <laughs> Over the next few years, then, what happened? What Tell me some of the highs and lows of, of the journey. What did you enjoy? What didn't you enjoy? I enjoyed that the business delivered, you know, from a values perspective. So, you know, the first year we we just literally, we scrambled, you know, we trying everything to make money and we would do everything to make money and we would grab any customer that we could to make money. And I think, um, you know, just to kind of get some, you know, some root networks down. And I think the joy that the business really has given me over, over the last few years is, I guess, firstly, that we delivered in terms of a value organisation. So we became very clear on our values. Our people established our values. They were built from the ground up. So our values have been and still are the absolute key drivers of our business. So we hire and fire on values. We have the belief that we can teach most of the skills, but if people don't come into our business with the values that we aspire to and aren't prepared to live them, then, then we don't want them in the business. So we can have an outstanding performer, but if he's not living our values, you know, we won't keep him in the business. And so to have a values-led business has been sensational. And it's also obviously from a cultural perspective, but also from a, a scalability perspective, because, you know, when in the early days I could touch, you know, we had five people, 10 people, 15, 20, I could touch them, you know, and I could instill those values and they could see them in me every day. But, you know, you get to a point now where we do, we've got 180 people in the business. If those values aren't inherent and if they're not integral into everything that we do, if they don't drive every single business decision that we make, then the business isn't scalable and we lose that. So values-led business is, is you know, one of the things I'm most proud of and the product that we bring to our customers is exceptional. Incredibly proud, you know, particularly of the team. I hate to think of the fact that I've left over, you know, three years ago and they've continued to do amazing things. That's, that's sometimes a bit of an ego blow, but, you know, just what the business needed and the product that we deliver to our clients in terms of service delivery, technology is exceptional. And thirdly is that it delivered my all-encompassing value, which is growth and learning. I've, I've had people that have been with me pretty much through the whole journey. You know, the business has just celebrated its 19th birthday. I've got people that have been with me for 17, 18 years. And that 
you know, one of my favourite stories is, you know, I had a young guy that started with me. He was young, 17, 18 years ago, as a domestic consultant. And from a consulting perspective, that's kind of a very basic, that's kind of, you don't know very much. He's progressed through the ranks and he now runs one of my most successful businesses. And, you know, he's, I've seen him grow, get married, have children. And to see him now, um, having come from literally kind of a, a very, very junior position to now successfully managing, you know, a very, very important piece of my company. Wow, that's as good as it gets, Franklin. It's fab, isn't it? You just, I think if you own or run a business, you just, you can help create, I was going to say wealth, but that's not what I mean. It's that opportunity for, for great people to do more than they ever thought was possible do you know what I mean you you know you hired him because you you you're looking at potential and and it's just you just get a great sense of satisfaction when those people that you back go on to just keep delivering you know seriously it is as good as I get and as it gets and it's one of the reasons why you know when we started the business we kind of we knew that corporate travel we could start with that but we also wanted to use that as a platform to be able to create new businesses and and take the business in different directions again obviously financially to, you know, the security of the business, but three, to give people different opportunities and opportunities that they wouldn't have had in a traditional business. And so so this particular gentleman, for example, I mean, he ran our, we started an events business, he ran that for quite some time, and now he's running a very, very different, still kind of in corporate travel, but it's a very, very different model that we've developed. And he's helped develop that model and he owns it and progresses it. And he couldn't have seen that 17 years ago. We, we couldn't envisage where the business would be 17 years ago, but we knew if we kept creating it and it would keep growing, then opportunities would come up for people to stay within the business and not have to leave because we could give them new opportunities. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it, where people sort of say, oh, I don't want to invest in my staff because they might leave. And it's like, God forbid that you don't invest them and they stay. Did you develop any sort of things other people could learn from or steal around hiring for values or firing for values? Yeah, absolutely. Look, one of the people that I really admire um, in the business world is, is, is um, Tony Shea from Zappo Shoes. Tony's created an incredibly successful business and he actually runs a boot camp in, um, in Vegas. And funnily enough, there was opportunity. I was racing in Vegas and so could do the boot camp, you know, the week after. Don't you love it when fortune gives you those opportunities? And um, so I attended one of these boot camps because I really wanted to understand culture from his perspective. I mean, he has one of the top three organisations in the world in terms of, of culture. And even Tony, you know, when you speak to him, says, if I was to go back, I would invest more in culture. So one of the things or a couple of the things that we do, you know, particularly from a values perspective is from the hiring stage, and it might sound daunting, but it actually isn't. When we have a new position that's available, that's opened up, our HR department sorts through the applications and we look at, you know, obviously technical capability. So, you know, can they technically do the job? And then, you know, we, we have a, a quick interview that makes sure that they can physically, technically do the job. And then they go on to what's called a values, literally we call it our green room. And what happens then, so an announcement goes out that, you know, there's an interview for this position and six people from within the organisation, within anywhere from the organisation, so it could be my CFO, it could be my accounts clerk, it could be a domestic consultant, account manager, anyone that wants to attend that interview. So they basically conduct a culture interview, a values interview. So those six people literally sit with this, you know, with this potential applicant 
and they talk to them about culture and they talk to them about values and they understand, you know, where they've made values-based decisions. Um, and they really get an understanding of whether this person is a cultural fit for our business. So technically, yes, they can do the job, but do we want them? Do Will they add and contribute to our culture? And it sounds quite daunting, and it might be, but it's also a double-edged sword, I guess, well, if there's a positive of that, because it actually gives the person that's coming to the company an opportunity because they would have been interviewed by HR, so they've heard all the company speak. So it's their opportunity to say, what's it really like here? Do I really want to work here? Do these values really matter? Are they? Do people really adhere to them? So it gives them an opportunity to see whether the fit is right for them. And it also means that if that person gets the job, they've got six people that are really invested They've made the call that this person gets the job and those six people are really invested in making sure this person continues and they make the final call. Like my business partner and I, I mean, we laugh. Sometimes we put people up for jobs and the culture team have said no and they get the call. So that starts it, you know, from kind of day one and then literally we evaluate, you know, we don't we don't necessarily do, we do very regular, we don't call them performance updates, but we talk to people very regularly about their performance and values are an integral part of that, you know, evaluating, you know, how they're delivering brilliance, how they're being bold, how they're taking responsibility and accountability. So so it's an integral part of what we do. And they were some of your values there. Were they bold and taking accountability? Yeah, just fix it, just do it, be brilliant. And, you know, when we talk about being brilliant, you know, we didn't want to be too prescriptive to people because everybody knows what being brilliant is. You know, everybody knows how to do a brilliant job and we know that it's a choice they make. So you can get up in the morning and you can come to work and you can do an okay job, but it's a conscious choice that you make. Today I'm going to be brilliant. What does that look like for me in my role, in my job, in the opportunity that I have in front of me today? So that's been fundamental to our business and frankly a a real driver for our success because it enables our people to make decisions by themselves. So, for example, we won't work with organisations that don't fit our value. Recently, a very junior account manager got given an opportunity. We were asked to work for a tobacco company. Funnily enough, that doesn't fit with my values. And she didn't need to ask me. She didn't need to ask the CEO. She didn't need to ask her boss. She made the call by herself because it's like, a quick question, is that an alarm or their values? No, it's not. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Let me find you somewhere else. So that can go all the way through the organisation. It doesn't need to, you know, I don't need to make that call. And that has enabled our culture and our, and our business to really kind of push out as we've grown. And stay fast. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know what your hiring success rate is? Because most organisations get it right, I don't know, one in four does the sort of values-based hiring, have you tracked it? Do you know whether you get it right more often than that? I couldn't give you actual numbers. I'm sure the kind of the HR guys would have tracked it, certainly in the last couple of years, because they've become very grown up <laughs> after <laughs> I left. In terms of our attrition rate, we, we measure that. So we look at the yeah. people that have left us that, you know, and occasionally we do get it wrong, very rarely. But, you know, we have, I think it's, you know, last call was 91%. That's of kind of, you know, the people that we don't want to lose. I mean, occasionally we, we do lose them because, yeah. you know, we can't give them the development they need. And, you know, going back to your point, you know, do we invest in them and then take the chance that they'll leave? Well, they may, but you know what? If we're investing in them in the time that we have them, wow, we get the best from them. Yeah. So, you know, I would never change that. 
and staying on hiring, maybe you have to tell a bit of your story first, but you stepped down from the organization three years ago and replaced yourself with a new CEO. I'd love you to tell me how you got that hire right. But I guess, first of all, you're going to have to tell me why you decided to step down and replace yourself. Yeah. Okay. About three years ago, I kind of, I woke up one morning and I realized that I loved my company. I loved my people, but I didn't like my job. I didn't like being CEO. And, you know, and I also, I think CEOs also kind of need to reach a point sometimes where they need to get out of the way. And they also need to appreciate when it might be time to bring in different skills and a different approach. And our business had been growing and, and it was still very much a, a kind of family business. And, and it really needed to go to the different, you know, to the next level of expansion, I think, for our business. You know, and I realized that I actually didn't want to be the person that, that did that. And that's a really tough realization, you know, when you've grown this baby from literally nothing into, you know, multi-million dollars. And, but I also realized that it wasn't, you know, I, I was concerned about, you know, whether I would be the person that would be able to deliver that next level. Did I want to do it? And I guess I also reached the part where just from a personal perspective, I had kind of ticked all the boxes, I think, in terms of what success looked like. So great business, great career, beautiful family, big house, big cars, crazy lifestyle. And I woke up and thought, okay, is this everything that I wanted my life to be? So I guess kind of potentially midlife crisis or, you know, kind of midlife awakening. I kind of went, okay, maybe there's something more and I need to go find that. So um, I had a very tough discussion with my business partner. That was always, you know, a difficult thing to do. You know, particularly we'd been in business for, you know, 16 years at that point and saying, okay, well, I, I want to step out was tough. But, you know, he's very, very supportive. I wanted to go ride my motorbike um, around the US and just look at what different kind of personal success could look like. So we went through the process of looking for a new CEO, which was, funnily enough, it was easier than I expected it to be. I mean, particularly, we looked outside, outside of our industry. We looked inside of our industry. And then we went to people that we really knew and trusted within the industry. And, and we got some recommendations as well. And so we went through... You know, actually, was a, I have to say, I mean, I, I know that there are horror stories out there where people got it wrong, but we, we went through a process of literally kind of interviewing half a dozen people and we just, we nailed the best CEO very, very quickly. And again, you know, the, the qualities that we were looking for was, you know, basically I didn't want to replace me, frankly, because nobody could. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we were very clear on where the business needed to go and we were looking and what we wanted the business to achieve in the next five years. And so we looked, we had a very strong set of skill sets that we, you know, we believed that we needed to attract into the position to be able to do that. And, you know, frankly, we were very fortunate to find someone very quickly that, that pretty much nailed all of the criteria that we were looking for. So she and I worked together for about seven months. I have to say it was probably one of the hardest seven months in my life because it was very, very difficult to let go. And I had to realize that I, I couldn't have my cake and eat it too. I couldn't say I need to go off and explore, and, but yes, I'm going to micromanage you. And there were things that she wanted to do, which I struggled with. But again, I, I had to be the bigger man and say, you know what, I just have to let go and I have to trust her 
And so the letting go period was was literally over six or seven months. It didn't happen overnight. She wanted it to happen overnight, but, you know, it was kind of a, an educational process for me and a growing process for her. And, uh, wow, she's just doing brilliant things. So, um, yeah, we're very fortunate. Fantastic. And so what, you went to the States and you rode your bike. Yeah. So, um, you know, as I said, I've, I've been riding all of my life and I have one son that's, that's a Canadian resident. He's based in, well, he's based in Vancouver. He was based at Whistler at the time. And so I knew that's where I wanted my journey to start. So I got, I, I decided to, if I was going to do it, I would only do it on a bike that looked like it was going to do 100 kilometers an hour when it was standing still. No touring bike, nothing boring like that. I wanted something that was fast, aggressive, scary. So I, I bought the fastest production bike in the world, BMW S1000RR. She is not supposed to be a touring bike. She doesn't know that. I call her she. Her name is Voodoo because she's dark and mysterious and she'll bite me if I get it wrong. So Voodoo and I packed up and we toured Canada and the States. We did about 23,000 kilometres, a little over 11,000 miles in three and a half months and literally just kind of did a massive circle down through, you know, Washington, Oregon, California, down into New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, and then back into British Columbia. So um, just the two of us on the road for, for nearly four months. Fantastic. And then that became, you wrote a book about your journey. I did. So the book is called Writing Raw. It's the journey from empty to full. So it is literally the story. Um, so it's the story of the journey, but also the story of my learning. As I went on this trip where you do wake up one day and you go, wow, I, I've got everything, but I feel empty. What is it I'm supposed to be in this world? What is what is it that's going to kind of give me purpose? And And I guess the best way for me to describe it is that I had all the head success. So I had all the traditional measures of success, everything that we kind of evaluate ourselves on as we go through our life. But I didn't have head, I didn't have heart success. So it's that journey literally from head success to heart success and finding a balance in between. I've done some, I suppose, longish traveling trips in my life. And, and one of the hardest things is slowing down. Did you, I know you're on a very fast bike, did you, but did you, was it 11,000 miles? Woof. Or did you, just start to sort of decompress and slow down and then have your moment of awakening or you know it was an evolutionary process I have a lot of conversations at gas stations and you know funnily enough they're where all of my epiphanies happen because and it's one of the beauties of traveling by yourself because if you're traveling with two people you know particularly on a bike people just go oh you know they they just ignore you when you're traveling by yourself and you've got British Columbian plates and you're a single woman and you're in New Mexico with an Australian accent, everybody wants to talk. And it's the most amazing environment because out of nowhere, over a five-minute conversation, I've gone, they've gone from great bike, cool, what are you doing, to, wow, you know, I didn't take opportunities in my life. I, you know, I wish that I had done this. Um, my wife left me. My brother doesn't talk to me. And you have these incredible epiphanies. And, and often what happens is I end up sitting down at a gas station in the dirt, in the dust, in the boots, and talking to people sometimes for an hour where we talk about life and experiences and things that we could have done differently and they they want to tell me their story, I, I guess because they're safe. I mean, you know, I'm on a, on a motorbike and I'm never going to see them again, so who am I going to tell their story to? So those epiphanies were amazing. Um, and people used to say to me, wow, you're super bike. You must be going everywhere very fast. And and I used to take pride in that. I'd say, yes, I am. I, you know, everything is very fast. And And then I started to realise, and it's too fast, and it's too fast. 
and you do need to kind of slow down and you need to drop the speed and you need to look at the trees and you don't need to rush from, you know, one destination to another, just keep ticking them off. It is, funnily enough, gosh, it's so cliche, but particularly on a motorbike, it's the journey. So it's stopping when you see something. It's instead of saying, I really can't talk to you because I really need to be somewhere else in three hours. It's about, you know what, let's have a coffee and let's talk. So with all of those experiences and, and frankly, the learning to be vulnerable because you're on a bike and lots of things go wrong for you and it's the learning to be vulnerable, which I've never allowed myself to be and to say, you know what, yep, need some help here, that would be great. And being able to stop being a superhero everywhere I went and just kind of be me, it's pretty amazing. Fantastic. And so what's next? I mean, other than racing for the next two days in near Seattle, what's you doing? You're doing some coaching, which you've mentioned. Yeah, I do. So I coach and I do public speaking, which which I really love. I'm still kind of on my motorbike for another couple of weeks, just kind of cruising and and you know reconnecting. It's you know for me being on the bike and just getting packing a bag and just going. It's kind of my reset button. It brings me back. It's fascinating because it's, I have a, a really amazing, exciting project that I'm, I'm just about to kind of get behind. And that's, I guess I kind of, I look at my life and I kind of look at the, the first 30 years for all about me and growth and, you know, and being who I wanted to be. The, kind of the next 30 were about, you know, my, my business and, and my family. I've got two sons that are now 22, 24, kind of stepping out and doing amazing things on their own. So, you know, kind of that was about, you know, business, building a business and, you know, my family, raising my kids. And I kind of go, the next 30, that'll kind of take me to close to 90 and then I'll renegotiate, I think. <laughs> so so for me, it's about actually being in service. It's about giving back. And um, I've wanted to do this for a long time. It's been kind of sitting in the back of my head for about 10 years. I, I went to Nepal. My husband and I went trekking in Nepal for our honeymoon which is kind of what you'd expect. There were no sipping by, you know, no romantic vacation sitting by a pool drinking pina coladas. We were out there, you know, boots and all. And um, Nepal has always had a very special place in my heart. My son is a cinematographer and he films a lot in Nepal. They do big mountain climbing, adventurous movie shooting. And Nepal and we lost um, two friends um, were killed in Nepal in the earthquake in 2015. And so my next project is actually building a school in Nepal which I hope to break ground on early next year. So, Whereabouts in Nepal? Well, I'm actually going on a, a scouting mission um, next month, so in October. So there are four different locations that I want to look at. Primarily, I think the Humla region, which is very remote, um, very difficult to get to. It's very under-resourced in terms of teachers. It's one of the challenges because it is so geographically remote. You can't get good teachers there. And it did suffer quite significantly uh, in terms of, you know, the last few years in terms of from the earthquake um, and from other kind of natural disasters. And it's a region that's in a valley, which also means that, you know, because obviously the majority of Nepal, you know, it's, it used wood burning and the smoke from the fires actually just hangs in the valley. So it causes huge respiratory challenges uh -huh. for, you know, for the kids, um, which often means that then they don't go to school, which means their education is lacking. So... So there's a raft of issues in the community that need to be addressed. And so, for example, they've just developed great technology so that they're very light but non-wood-burning stoves. So, so for me, going scouting, I'm actually, you know, my, my son, that's, that he will actually be in the pool filming, so he's going to be joining me. So, so there's four regions that we've identified that we just want to go and see, you know, where best we can, we can make an impact, the biggest impact. 
Fab. I love Nepal. My great grandmother was Nepalese. I've been a few times. Yeah. No, very nice. Great place. Did uh round Annapurna a few years ago now. So it's stunning and, and it's it's always had a place in my heart and it's always, you know, for about ten years I kind of literally had a, a dream ten years ago. And strangely enough, I did a, a Vipassana retreat. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a it's a ten day silent meditation retreat. Okay. Where literally you meditate and it sounds as tough as it is, but literally you meditate for about ten hours a day. And it's silent for, for ten days. You don't speak for ten days. And I did it last year and just had literally kind of this, it was literally an epiphany. It was like, okay, and now's the time. And, and, you know, I've reached that point now where my boys are doing well, my business is in great hands, you know, I'm coaching, I'm loving my clients, but it's time for me to kind of really, you know, kind of give back. I've I've had a very blessed and incredible life and um, to not be able to use that to to give back, I think we can't be wasting a lot of the things I've achieved. So that's the plan. See, that's brilliant. There's two questions I always ask people. So actually, it's a great segue from that to the first question, which is, what is it that you know now that, not with a sense of regret, but wouldn't it have been great if? What what do you know now that if you took it back in time, could have made a difference? I think there's probably two things. You know, one is professionally, and professionally was would be get out of the way. Let go of control. You know, I you've employed great people. They've got great talents, great skills, great capability. Let them do their job. And, you know, that was a tough lesson for me because, you know, I, I have always been a control freak. So it's like, yeah, I know you're good. I know you're good, but I'm sure I can do it better. And in truth, I couldn't. And I was devaluing, devaluing everything that they were bringing to the business. You know, and I think as a CEO, as I mentioned, you know, there, there does come a point in time where you need to get out of people's way and let them do the job. Have trust in the people that you've built. And let go of that control so that you can focus on the business, not in the business. So that was a critical learning lesson for me, um, particularly as the business grew because I, I literally, I, I found it hard, you know, and it, it was my safe place. You know, when all else failed as a CEO, you know, I could roll my sleeves up and dig in because that's what, you know, I love doing and that's where it felt safe. Um, and it didn't feel safe to kind of step back and go, okay, take off this. So yeah. learning to let go of control was critical. So that's probably professionally. And personally, it would have been to have found a better balance. And, and I ha- actually hate the word balance. I, I tend to use the word harmony because I think when you're, when you're achieving, when you want to do something great, there often is no balance. You know, you, if you want to do great things in your career, in your life, with your family, there are some times where you need to focus on one specific thing. And, and, but it's about giving it your attention and, and a single focus. But then when you've achieved you know, you've achieved whatever it is you need to do or the task is done, then you switch and then you switch your focus back to the other areas of your life, so your family or breathing or, you know, doing things with yourself. So I wish that I had been better at um, understanding harmony in my life. Okay, that's great. Along the way, you probably read a few books. Do you have any that have made a difference to you that you would recommend the rest of us read? Tony Shea, Happiness, it's a great book in terms of culture. I'm a big fan of Stephen Pressfield, so The War of Art, which is a great book. Um, and it really, you know, particularly if you're writing, but it, it talks very much about procrastination, what makes you stop, what stops you from going forward, what happens when you, you know, when you face excuses and you don't want to do things. And so that's an exceptional book. Jim Collins, obviously one of my faves, anything of Jim Collins. And, and there's a, 
I'm not even going to try and get his surname right. Um, but there's an amazing book and it's called Turn That Ship Around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know who you mean. Yep. It's by a submarine commander who was given a, a, a really kind of the worst submarine in the, the US Navy fleet. And literally when you when you go out on a mission and you're away for three months, you can't throw people overboard if they're not doing their job. And it's about how he literally, in, in, you know, I think it was about three or four months, turned that ship around from being one of the worst performing submarines in the US history to being the best performing submarine. And it's just amazing and it's just full of incredible insights. And even if your business isn't doing badly, just incredible insights in terms of how to really work with people to achieve joint objectives, you know, professional objectives and personal objectives. So one of my favourites. Yeah, it's about giving up control, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) There's a theme in that. Sue, that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me. It's been my pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks very much, Dominic. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.